0: This is the World Bank's Infrastructure Podcast. In this episode, we discuss how organizations may better secure their business from cyber attacks. Power outages in India, the Colonial Pipeline shutdown in the United States, the breach at the Cruise Line Carnival Corporation, and the network breach at the city of Johannesburg are just a few of the numerous and increasingly sophisticated cyber attacks of recent times. Every day, there's a new list of attacks. Businesses, governments, and consumers are increasingly aware of the huge damage that can result from cyber attacks, and digital information is multiplying by the second. Yet, by one report, 60% of breaches in 2019 exploited vulnerabilities for which a security patch was available, but not applied. 50% of personal computers that were infected once were infected again the same year. And there were almost 138 million new malware samples in 2020. It's clear that we need to strengthen cybersecurity measures. Let us find out how. Good morning and welcome. I am Rumeen Islam, the host of Tell Me How, and today I have as our guest Neil Daswani, an expert on cybersecurity, and currently co-director of the Stanford Advanced Cybersecurity Certification Program. He has recently written a book, Big Breaches, which discusses practical lessons on how to deal with cybersecurity issues. We hope to learn some of these lessons. Welcome, Neil.
1: Thanks for having me, Ramin, and pleasure to be here.
0: Well, we're very excited to have you with us today to discuss a topic that's increasingly on people's minds. How to keep all this information that we've got stored in the digital space safe from cyber attacks. Perhaps you could start by giving us an idea of the magnitude of the problem because I understand you've been looking at some very large cases.
1: Yes. So first of all, cybersecurity is a big problem. Some estimates peg the cost of cybercrime to the world at over 10 trillion by 2025, up from 3 trillion in 2015, as per statistics from Cybersecurity Ventures. Even if that statistic might be exaggerated, it wouldn't surprise me that the actual cost of cybercrime is easily going to be in the trillions. McAfee has estimated cybercrime to be about 1 trillion for 2020, or 1% of global GDP. Aside from cybercrime, it's also very hard to estimate the cost of nation-state attacks as opposed to, say, organized cybercriminal attacks.
0: So I guess the cost of cybercrime is, is quite high, but how much is actually spent on cybersecurity? Are the amounts commensurate to the problem?
1: Over $120 billion is spent on cybersecurity solutions per year, in fact in 2019 Gartner estimated that it was 124 billion that was spent yearly by companies and organizations There's been about 45000000000 billion that's been invested in cybersecurity companies, both through private equity as well as through public IPO investments, in the 14-year period from 2005 to 2019. So there is a lot that is getting spent on cybersecurity, but given the kinds of attacks that we've been seeing, for instance, in the aftermath of the SolarWinds hack, the amounts that are being spent are probably not commensurate to the problem. I think most organizations do need to be investing more in cybersecurity than they currently are.
0: But the numbers that you just mentioned, so you mentioned cybersecurity solutions, and then you mentioned IPOs and, and investments by new firms. So aren't those somewhat different measures of what's being invested in? One is how, I guess one might be how much companies are actually spending on cybersecurity solutions, and the other is how much innovation and how much investment there is in new companies.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. So the $45 that I quoted uh, over the period from 2005 to 2019 is a measure of cybersecurity innovation going into both startup companies as well as public IPOs when those innovations are ripe enough to... Be offered kind of on the on the public market. The amount that is getting spent uh, worldwide on cybersecurity solutions, uh, meaning, well, baked solutions, that is the 120 billion number. And I expect that uh, both of those numbers uh, will be going up. The question is how much will they go up and will it be commensurate to the size of the problem?
0: Are there any particular sectors that have suffered a higher number of attacks? What would be your guess? I mean, I assume that what affects whether you're attack- attacked or not is the size of the potential payoff and uh, the number of transactions some sectors make probably makes them more likely to suffer attacks.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So there are some areas like uh, banking and the high-tech sectors that do get targeted with more attacks. And that's simply because organized cyber criminals want to go after the money. The money in the banks, the money's in the big high-tech companies. So that's where they, that's where they go first. That said, because those sectors invest more, the number of successful attacks against those sectors is smaller as compared to, say, sectors such as healthcare and hospitals. When a piece of uh, ransomware, malicious software that is meant to take data and organizations hostage, when that kind of thing spreads through healthcare and hospitals... The chance of those attacks being successful is higher than against high-tech companies and banks which typically invest more in their cybersecurity defences than, say, hospitals and healthcare organizations.
0: So that's obviously very interesting because that's what one might expect. You know the success of the attack versus the size of the payoff once you once you get in, both are both are important. Now, how does the number of attacks look when divided into small versus large firms? Are small firms likely to be less vulnerable because the payoff is smaller?
1: So I don't have a specific breakdown on large versus small firms, but small firms are not less vulnerable. Small firms usually end up being more vulnerable because they simply don't have the resources to invest as much in their own security. And I think the the question is... Sorry,
0: no, may I interrupt? Sure. I didn't mean were they more vulnerable. I meant hacking into a small firm could lead to a big gain. I understand the small firms may not have as much to invest, but there are other reasons why they could be vulnerable, right?
1: Absolutely. Uh, A lot of small firms have big firms as customers, and often the attackers want to get at the big firms. And so, for instance, if we look at the recent SolarWinds attack from this past... December, SolarWinds was a software provider that was getting used by government agencies and nine U.S. government agencies were compromised because the attackers got into the small firm first. In addition to government agencies, there were approximately 100 private companies that were compromised, uh, larger private companies that were compromised because the attackers went after the small firm first.
0: So uh, Neil, where do you get information on data breaches? Because you needed a lot of information to write your book. So where did you get all this information?
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of great information sources. Uh, privacyrights.org maintains a database of reported breaches. The identity theft resource center also maintains a database of reported breaches that have taken place.
0: Sorry, Neil, this is in the U.S. though, right?
1: This is in the U.S., that is correct. At the same time, both of those sources, privacyrights.org and the INF Resource Center, when there are big breaches that, say, impact high-tech companies like Facebook, for instance, that does impact the entire world, and these resources do focus on breaches that also cover the world. Now, it'd be great to see the, the worldwide community keep track of breaches in many other countries as well. And I think there's challenges as to, in certain countries, they may not want to be as transparent about the breaches that take place there. But the more that we catalog these breaches, the more that we can understand the root causes, And the more that we can invest in the right countermeasures to protect against future such breaches as more and more breaches occur. In the United States, each state pretty much has its own definition of what constitutes a data breach. Most of the definitions are along the lines of when a consumer's name and some sensitive identifier or identifiers about them, like their social security number or their driver's license number or bank account numbers get stolen or exposed, then that constitutes a data breach. Uh, Unfortunately, because each state has their own laws, when a data breach occurs, the attorneys at organizations that get breached, they, they have to consult all the different state laws. There's currently no federal level consistent definition of breach. And let me also mention that the current legal definition of data breach does not cover all kinds of security compromises and incidents that do not impact consumer information. So if a company, say, gets broken into and their trade tickets get stolen, that does not necessarily constitute a legally reportable breach. But in the aftermath of the SolarWinds hack, the the hope is that at some point there will be more broad breach notification laws and breach definitions that go well beyond the scope of consumer personal information, and that would be an advancement to the field.
0: I see. So you just made two very important points, that the definition of a data breach right now is um, narrow, that is disclosable, that what you have to disclose is is narrow. And the second uh, thing that you said, that about each state having a different approach to data breaches makes me think of how complex it must be at the world level each country has a different approach so these are um, very important issues that makes the whole problem much harder to deal with
1: yes that's exactly right even in europe where where the where the gdpr the general data protection act is is, is passed that there is uh, quite a bit of focus on consumer information in that law as well And I I do think that the laws around and what constitutes a data breach in laws around the world do also need to be broadened.
0: Okay, so let's go on a bit to thinking about cybersecurity from the perspective of a particular firm. Suppose you were asked to set up a strategy for cybersecurity in an organization. How would you go about it?
1: What I would do is I would first want to understand what that organization wants to protect against. In particular, there may be a certain set of security threats that are existential to that organization, where if, say, their intellectual property or certain other information might be compromised, it it could just end up being the end of that organization. And I think it's important for boards of directors to first understand what are the existential threats to the organization and design the company's security program around those existential threats. Now, most businesses will have to comply with a whole bunch of security compliance standards, whether it be PCI to take credit cards or HIPAA to operate in the healthcare market or whatever it happens to be. But I would encourage organizations to focus on the existential threats first and secure, their most important data assets, their most important business processes, and as much as possible, work to achieve compliance with security standards as a side effect of their security programs. I think we live in a world today where a lot of organizations primarily work to comply with a whole bunch of these security compliance standards. But the problem is that the overwhelming majority of Organizations that have been breached were compliant. Uh, the compliance involves checking hundreds of check boxes, satisfying minimal criteria for all of them, and has not necessarily helped in preventing all of all of these breaches. The managerial and technical root causes of breaches across all the breaches that have taken place is a much, much, much smaller set of things to focus on. Less than ten as compared to the hundreds of checkboxes that you need to satisfy in these compliance standards that are often designed by committee.
0: Neil, you spoke about the technical root causes, and could you please go into these? What are the main root causes that you mentioned in your book?
1: Sure, from having looked at over 9,000 reported breaches, there are really just six technical root causes of breach. They are phishing and account takeover is number one, malware is number two, software vulnerabilities as number three, third party compromise and abuse as number four. Then there's inadvertent employee mistakes that are separate from phishing because that's just such a prevalent one. It makes sense to dedicate a category to it. And then finally, unencrypted data is the the sixth technical root cause of breach.
0: So, some of these are obviously self evident. You know, if you don't have encrypted data, it's going to be breached. Um, and employee uh, mistakes, yes. But could we go a bit into some of the other ones, which may not be uh, immediately apparent? Like, w- could you go into what you mean by phishing, malware? software vulnerabilities and third-party compromise. Actually, I think, let me rephrase that. Software vulnerabilities, I assume you're referring to bugs in the software. Is that right?
1: Uh, Correct. There's actually two kinds of software vulnerabilities. One are bugs and are what are called implementation vulnerabilities. The other are software design vulnerabilities, where it may not just be a single bug, but there may be a more systematic design problem with the security of the software, Uh, for instance, it could allow for unauthenticated people to log into a system. And that's more of a design issue as opposed to just a small bug in the line of code.
0: Okay. And so, so what's phishing?
1: Sure. So phishing is an attack where the cyber criminals or nation states send out emails claiming to be somebody else. And they're Geared at socially engineering somebody to click on a link or go to a web page and surrender their credentials because the website that they're being directed to looks, say, exactly like the bank, except it's really not the bank's website. So that's phishing. And over the years, phishing attacks have gotten a lot more targeted than they used to be. Sometimes you'll hear the term spear phishing to refer to a more targeted phishing attack than, say, just getting an email claiming to be, it's from the bank.
0: And could you speak about what kind of defense you may have against uh, this sort of attack?
1: Sure. The gold standard defense against phishing is to use uh, multi-factor authentication. There's many kinds of multi-factor authentication. One of the best ones is to use a hardware security key, like a YubiKey, where similar to when you, say, drive a car, you stick a key in to turn it on. The way that hardware security keys and YubiKeys work is such that in order to log into a system, in addition to providing your username and password, you also have to put in a piece of hardware, say, into the, into the USB port of your laptop or whatnot. And on that piece of hardware is a secret cryptographic key that's associated with you. and There's basically, when you look at, for instance, Google deploying hardware security keys to the bulk of their employees back in 2017, even though Google is regularly under nation state attack, regularly targeted by nation states, there has not been one Google employee that has successfully been phished because of their usage of hardware security keys to defeat phishing.
0: So no matter how much software we have, we still need some hardware out there to protect us.
1: Yeah, one of the, one of the problems with software is that it uh, is typically very malleable and easily changeable. And unless there is some tamper-resistant hardware to defend things like cryptographic keys, you know, it's just very hard to achieve security only using software.
0: Okay, but what about malware? What types of approaches are effective here?
1: Sure. So malware is uh, just a short word for malicious software. It's basically software written by attackers of one kind or the other. And malware defenses have evolved over the decades. Most of the early defenses in malware used to use what are called signatures the defenders used to identify sequences of bytes that would appear in the attacker software and build an inventory and catalog it and just basically look for those signatures in new software that's, say, coming down to a computer. But as you could imagine, that approach has proved to be very fragile and inadequate. Today, the best anti-malware defenses leverage artificial intelligence where the artificial intelligence can recognize previously unseen malware. So when attackers craft new malware and new variants of malware, artificially intelligent anti-malware defenses are able to detect previously unknown malware and malware that's being observed for the very first time They're much more likely to catch that kind of malware. So I would encourage organizations to use anti-malware defenses that leverage artificial intelligence.
0: And there must be uh, a lot of companies coming up that do this sort of thing.
1: Yeah, that's right. There are are many companies uh, that uh, purport to have such defense. I think that there's companies like Blue Hexagon, where they are run by people that are scientists and engineers by background. And they, for instance, are able to detect previously unknown malware at detection rates of above 99%, uh, whereas there's many other offerings on the market that don't have close to that kind of a detection rate on previously unseen malware. So I would encourage organizations to look at the scientific effectiveness of these types of anti-malware defenses that leverage artificial intelligence and leverage tests that have been done by independent third-party labs as to the effectiveness of these kinds of defenses. You know, I think in the in the cybersecurity industry, it is very important to look at the scientific effectiveness, just as look we look at scientific effectiveness for drugs and uh, vaccines, uh, we've got to start doing more of that in the cybersecurity field so that we can really cull out the types of defenses and suppliers that have the scientifically effective countermeasures as opposed to other vendors that might be selling snake oil.
0: That's a very interesting point you make. And also that if the attackers are using AI-based mechanisms, then to protect against the attackers, you need to be sure that you're using Uh, similarly sophisticated uh, methods. Now, um, right? Is that right? Yes. exactly right. So do any of your recommendations change depending on the type of firm or service you are dealing with?
1: So I think depending upon the kind of organization it is, uh, they should focus on their existential threats. For instance, there might be some companies that develop intellectual property for a living. And while they may not have a lot of operational systems, the security of their intellectual property is the core asset of the company. And if if that gets stolen, well, it could be game over for the company, or you know that company's valuation could be a heck of a lot less if um, the intellectual property gets stolen. Now there there's other companies where they may have you know many tens or hundreds of, or billions of consumers, in which case. If they use the data about those consumers to monetize their service, well, then protecting that information will be critical to maintaining the trust of the consumers that use that service, say in the case of a social media company. So I think depending upon what kind of company it is, you know, my recommendations for, for protecting them uh, would differ widely, you know, keeping in mind also that the, that, the, that the root causes of breach are pretty stable and similar over the past 10 years or so.
0: So if the root causes of breach are stable and similar, but there are just different types of data that need to be protected, like personal data versus trade secrets or intellectual property, then how does the intersection of those two things change what you would say to a firm? I I don't think I still got that.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, I'm glad you asked. It's a very astute question. The intersection changes which countermeasures may make the most sense to deploy for that organization. So for instance, while root causes of breaches might include malware or might include uh, unencrypted data or whatnot, what kind of countermeasure you deploy to say, protect intellectual property data versus say consumer data in the case of social media may differ widely. So to just give a concrete example, in the case of a company that needs to protect its intellectual property at its core, you know, encrypting the intellectual property may not be sufficient simply because of the fact that if you have just one insider uh, in that company that gets paid off uh, and has legitimate access to the systems, it may be a lot more important to protect against insider threat for that kind of a company as compared to say a social media company where you need to deploy defenses that don't result in, say, infecting all your consumers as, a, as an important uh, vector of, of attack. And so those two countermeasures would be...
0: They're be very, very different. different. And that's why you need managerial, a, a different types of managerial attention.
1: That is exactly right.
0: But if every company has several products to manage each type of threat, how do you manage all the products and the oversight of this?
1: That is one of the reasons that most organizations should hire a chief information security officer, because that executive will look at what are the existential threats at the board level. That executive will look at all the different countermeasures that are available on the market uh, and help recommend what are the right suppliers to bring in what are the right countermeasures and defenses to bring in for that business it's not a it's not a cookie cutter sort of thing
0: okay so this is why just meeting just being compliant with all the requirements is not enough because it's not a cookie cutter type of approach you actually need to think about what your organization does and where the threats are coming from but also wouldn't you say that It's uh, very important that um, there's broad understanding in the organization at the level of the board. I mean, where are the different, where do you think there needs to be understanding? It's not just the chief uh, information security officer, right?
1: Yes, that's right. I think there does need to be board level understanding. And you did highlight, okay, there's many different compliance standards, right? So for instance, if you look at the, the PCI security compliance standard, Well, that standard will help make sure that if your organization takes credit card numbers for a living, that those credit card numbers are protected. But beyond that, PCI, uh, in and of itself is not primarily focused on protecting your trade secrets or your intellectual property, or even other personal data about the consumers besides their credit cards. So there, there, there should be, and there does need to be a board level exercise that has to take place around what are the most significant threats to this organization, and then work together with the chief information security officer to put a security program and evolve a security program in place that is focused on what's most important to the company. You know, and, and, and it's, it's it's unlikely that's just going to directly intersect with what the compliance standards are going to cover.
0: So, but what is the most important advice that you would give to security and technology leaders today?
1: The most important advice that I would give to security and technology leaders, especially when engaging with their CEOs and their boards, is that it is just as important to be a good general manager understand the fundamentals of the business and the organization that you're looking to protect, you should show up as first an executive of the company uh, with all the background that all the other executives have, and then think about that as context in how you go about protecting the organization and its, its data assets and its consumers and its, its customers and its employees. Um, that would be my first primary level of, of advice. Uh, You don't want to be perceived as, you know, a person that, uh, or an executive that's just only focused on security. You should be a good general manager of the business with a spike of domain expertise in the area of security to help that organization achieve its security goals
0: okay but then we're looking for you know uh, a different breed of leaders in it coming up right in the in the next uh, rounds of leaders coming up that,
1: that is right i think i think there's a lot of cybersecurity professionals out there that understand cybersecurity very well and maybe have say technical uh, depth in certain areas of cybersecurity but i think that in order to protect an organization the first thing that you need to do is make sure that you're always speaking English and that you're always speaking the language of the business first and foremost, and then use that as part of your your, your path to help protect the business in a very natural way, interacting with the executive team.
0: Now, we talked about you know the, the risks that the single company or organization faces, but what about third-party suppliers, how would you handle this relationship? Suppose you're a firm that within the firm, you're, you're very tight and know its cybersecurity measures. How do you handle your suppliers?
1: The question of how to deal with supply chain security and all suppliers that an organization might have is more critical than it ever was before. In the aftermath of the SolarWinds hack, where they had many customers that were government agencies and large private companies, we have to always keep in mind that attackers may try to get into larger, more well-protected organizations by breaking into the smaller organizations first. And so I think for any organization that has you know dozens or more of suppliers, it is important to have a proper supply chain security management in place where you may need to check the kind of audit results of all those third-party suppliers, but as we've talked about, just looking at their compliance is usually not sufficient. Uh, you've got to look at, well, what are those suppliers doing for you? Are, they, are you buying pencils from the company or uh, does that organization have its networks tied in with yours? And depending upon how deep that relationship is and what they're doing for your company, that should guide your security requirements of the suppliers and i think it has to go well beyond just checking that they're compliant with some security standard or the other or the other
0: and uh, that sounds very reasonable now one thing I, I was thinking of as we were going through this is that you know in many developing countries governments are capacity constrained and they don't have a lot of resources to divert to cybersecurity and attacks are becoming increasingly global in nature. So, so what's the best solution? Should countries that have low ability to secure themselves from cyber attacks think twice about going digital? I mean, this is a difficult question to answer, right? Because if they think twice about going digital, then they're falling behind on technology adoption. So Absolutely.
1: what's the answer? <laughs> but I think that developing countries that are... Going through a digital transformation are in a great position to incorporate cybersecurity as part of their digital transformation. And chances are that by investing in security as part of a digital transformation, you have a much better chance of actually becoming secure. And you also don't have to deal with, say, tons of legacy systems. That more developed countries already have, where if you look at power grids, if you look at uh, dams, if you look at water treatment facilities, if you look at oil pipelines, in countries that are already advanced and developed, they they have the problem that a lot of the software that's used to run those systems operationally are very out of date. Some are so out of date they can't even be patched with software updates, and so when when you have a developing country that is uh adopting digital and going through a digital transformation that there's just great opportunity to design security into that digital transformation and chances are they will end up being much more secure than an approach where you have say tons of old legacy systems and you've got to put defense on top of defense on top of defense to to try to deal with the fact that some of those initial systems legacy systems are not as patched and easily defendable. So I think bottom line for developing countries it's a great opportunity to design security in and it'll typically cost less than if you had a whole bunch of infrastructure already.
0: Of course it'll cost less than if you had to repair your old systems, you know, like you're saying. However, it will cost more if you have to put in the advanced security systems than if you didn't have to, right? So I, I'm just thinking of their uh, capacity constraints, but I guess there's no other way, as you just said, we wouldn't want critical infrastructure to be attacked.
1: Well, I think the other, the other way to think about it is that if you don't design security in, uh, as you're going through the digital transformation, uh, then the question is you, you might be saving dollars in the short term or you might be saving some of the currency in the short term, but over the medium and long term,
0: Absolutely, um, yeah.
1: whenever there's a tax, whenever there's incidents, whenever there's compromises, um, you know, the cost then to deal with those incidents and compromises and then deal with the fact that the security is going to have to be layered on and layered into the systems after the fact is, is probably going to be much more expensive. And by the way, uh, you know, there, there's many, many large organizations that, that have figured this out. So, you know, when Facebook was still a startup and even even when they advanced to becoming a public company, you know, they had a they had a saying uh, they wanted to move fast and break things. That was their motto, move fast okay. and break things. And they did. They moved very fast. And then a whole bunch of things Broke. Um, And without getting into all the things that broke, Facebook's new motto is move fast with stable infrastructure. Their new motto does not incorporate breaking things anymore. uh, But what they found is that when they were moving so fast and when they didn't take security uh, as well as all kinds of other software development practices into mind, they would end up having bugs which would inadvertently reveal people's birthdays on social media sites and they had they incurred a, a 5 billion dollar fine from the federal trade commission in 2019 so pretty much their approach became tempered over time where they still want to move fast but move fast with stable infrastructure and one can imagine that security and safety of that infrastructure is part of its stability
0: That's an excellent point that you just made, thank you. Now, in what areas of cybersecurity do you think there should be more research and investment?
1: I think that there are a lot of areas of cybersecurity that can benefit from further research and investment. In fact, uh, chapter 14 of my book, um, Big Breaches, focuses on advice to cybersecurity investors and innovators, and having analyzed where a whole bunch of money has gone today and what have been the root causes of breaches. uh, Some of the areas which I believe need more investment is uh, as follows. I think that leveraging more artificial intelligence is super important. There's so many open positions in the field that we simply can't train people fast enough. And so what we need to do is leverage artificial intelligence to automate away uh, the most entry-level jobs and have the people that are entering the field do the more advanced jobs that computers can't do. I think that's one area for further development. I think that there's also so many organizations that are adopting AI that we need to worry about the security of the AI. Uh, when attackers can leverage vulnerabilities in, say, artificial intelligence that's responsible for detection of cyber attacks, uh, that's, that's bad news. So I think that artificial intelligent applications of security and securing the AI is one important area, but there's many others. I think that um, Internet of Things security needs more investment. I think that uh, innovation in cyber insurance needs to take place such that uh, organizations can uh, offset or transfer some of the risk, given the number of breaches that are taking place, but we need better models on how to assess risk with the internet of things as i mentioned there's so many more billions of devices that are going to come online in the coming years that if we if we think we may have been under investing in cybersecurity to date for all the mobile phones and laptops and servers we are i think woefully behind with protecting all the internet of things devices so you know the these various areas think if you look at internet of things devices if you look at the security of them. If you look at cyber insurance, there's been less than $1.5 billion of investment in, in in either of those areas. And there's been some significant uh, companies that have been attacked even just this year. So uh, there, there's many, many future areas for uh, for innovation and advancement in the area of cybersecurity.
0: Thank you, Neil. That was a very, very interesting discussion. Thank you, Romain, for having me. Well, listeners, what are some of the things we learned today? Firstly, addressing cybersecurity weaknesses requires understanding how well technical solutions are suited to the business needs, the management style, and business models of the firm. Secondly, firms need to focus on the weaknesses that threaten the existence of the firm itself, and preventing breaches requires more than compliance with policy or regulatory standards. Thirdly. Cyber attackers are increasingly sophisticated. Security measures using scientifically tested AI tools will be needed to combat attacks. Finally, developing countries that are digitalizing their economies need to put cybersecurity measures at the front and center of these efforts. Any investment in cybersecurity at the start of the process Will have substantial payoffs in ensuring the long-term sustainability of their business and of their critical infrastructure, and it may also be financially less costly. Thank you, and bye for now. You can find more information about the podcast on WorldBank.org forward slash Tell Me How. If you've got questions or comments, we'd love to hear from can also find us on all popular podcasting platforms. This episode was recorded in July 2021. Don't forget to subscribe and thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.